I'm talking to this fellow business owner and I'm like, how do you approach IP protection? And he said to me, look, you can operate from a mindset of plenty or a mindset of scarcity. How this guy operated was from a mindset of plenty and going, there's plenty of opportunities here for everybody. And that conversation fundamentally changed the way that I think. And even though that's not an overt stated value and inventium, it is just part of our DNA now. When you look at that success you've had, are you, are you really strategic? Are you really just focused and, and know how to set goals? What I definitely am is opportunistic. So but probably the first half of Inventium's life, we had a limited strategy. We had no budget. We had growing pains and we had various challenges and fires to put out. But by and large, it just kind of happened without a strategy. Dr. Amantha Imber. Amantha Imber. Dr. Amantha Imber. Dr. Amantha Imber. Founder of Inventium, Australia's leading innovation consultancy. Clients include Unilever, Clayton Utes, Blackmores, Allen's Linklaters, Movac, Google, Apple, Disney, Lego, and Atlassian. Amantha hosts the top-ranking podcast, How I Work, and I've been listening to this for over five years. It's had over five million downloads. Let me give you some names. Leanne Moriarty, Hugh Van Kylenberg, Maggie Beer, Janine Alysis, Mia Friedman, Tim Kendall, Holly Ransom, and MBS, Michael Bungay-Stania. Yeah, it's been amazing. I mean, that's been one of the joys of, of having a podcast. New book, The Health Habits, Shape Up, Sleep Better and Feel Amazing. I picked it up and like, looked up, it's midnight, and I got engrossed. We're taught by the media that's like, well, this is how you change a habit. And it's like, well, actually, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. You're far better off having a personalised plan based on what you as an individual are struggling with. I, I was having this thought, I'm like, why hasn't anyone combined these two concepts? Because when you read a book about improving your health, which ultimately involves habit change, you kind of need a companion book about how do you actually create permanent lasting change when you're talking about your habits. What's one tip from Shape Up that excites you the most? Optimise performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. Hi, it's Andrew and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Dr. Amantha Imba is an organisational psychologist and founder of behaviour change consultancy Inventium, which helps organisations all over the world reinvent the way they approach work, be more productive and grow through innovation. Amantha hosts the top-ranking podcast, How I Work, and I've been listening to this for over five years. It's had over five million downloads, and she interviews some of the world's most successful people about their habits, their rituals, and their strategies for optimizing the day. Amantha's thoughts have appeared in Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Fast Company, and she's the author of three best-selling books, and her latest book, and what a time for this, as we all get into our New Year goals, it's called The Health Habit, and it's hot on demand right now. In a previous life, Amantha had an international record deal for her debut album, Like Samantha, without the S. We've got to talk about that. She has an unhealthy obsession with musical theatre and claims to have once been freakishly good at table tennis. Dr. Amantha Imba, welcome to the podcast. Ah, thanks for having me. <laughs> now, I have two confessions to make, Amantha, and I have a clear communication goal. So the confession, first of all, I've had an occupational crush on you for over five years. Is that a really awkward <laughs> that. way to start the podcast? 
Oh, well, thank you. I'm, I, like, I'm flattered. That, that's lovely to hear. <laughs> uh, Jason Murray, when I was working at KPMG and Jace was in our team and he knew you from a previous life and he said, oh, there's this woman, Amantha, I think you'd really like her podcast, How I Work. So I was introduced to your work over five years ago. The second intention is clear communication. You do a lot of interviews, even for your new book. You must have done dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews. Oh, so many. Like, hundreds for how I work. And then the new book, I did a lot of interviews with various health professors and health experts. So, and also just in my work at Inventium, interviewing people is is something that I do a lot. So yes, it's it's always nice being on on the other side and, and not have, I think as an interviewer, you're you're kind of trying to be present in the interview, but you're also hovering up above and being kind of critical. And I mean, with my podcast, I do air checks with my producer where she'll go through and basically critique every little issue that I have with my interviewing, which are numerous. So it's kind of, it's almost relaxing being the subject of an interview, which might sound sort of weird. No, I, I get it as well. And it, it, it's that flip though, right? You're rocking up, you're there, we have muscle memory and hey, I'm no, no, actually I'm being interviewed. That's right. I've written my fourth book. This is going to be a bestseller <laughs> as well. So my clear communication intent, I want to ask you a few questions or talk about a few topics that you don't normally talk about. Oh, that sounds exciting. That sounds very exciting. <laughs> so as a, a rough frame, one, I want to dance. I'm just thinking I sound so creepy. Hey, I've had an intellectual <laughs> crush on you. Let's dance. Let's dance between creativity and results and let's dance between success and setbacks. Number two, we.com, building Inventium. Three, me.com and, and how you uncouple, especially as an organisational site, getting yourself out there because you must have some thoughts going, you can't do that. I can't stop big noting yourself because that's what you've learned so long in psychology. Four, talk about stuff, your podcast. You've interviewed some rock stars and I really, really want to drill down deep and what makes a great interview, do you think, or what also makes a shit interview? And do you listen back to some of your early ones and just go, oh, that's a car crash? Like, can you listen to your early ones or were they always just A-grade quality? Oh, I yeah, I do struggle with that. I, I haven't – I'm just trying to think the last time I've gone back – several years and it's been a while but I mean because I've had so much coaching from my producer in terms of what are my annoying ticks as an interviewer what are my annoying habits I kind of cringe whenever I hear that like we've all got verbal ticks you know I think another thing that I had to really learn as an interviewer is that when you train as a psychologist you're taught things like to to give nonverbal feedback when you're listening, like saying, mm, mm, and, and nodding your head. And in an audio medium, and also when you're thinking about the editor's job, saying, mm, mm, mm. like whenever mm. your interviewee is, uh, is answering something, is a nightmare for the editor and very annoying. And so it's... Uh, so, so what I found is actually quite helpful with podcast interviews. Some people just um, have audio only and no visual with the tech that they use or the software that they use, but it's quite helpful having the visual because if I'm interviewing someone, I can nod and smile and give all the nonverbal cues to go, yes, that's a great answer. I'm totally with you here because I know that I can't give the verbal response to say, oh, that's really great. I'm listening because that can get very annoying to listen it. So that's just one example Wizard. where I listen back. Wizard is looking mm. here going, 
Mm, mm, because in the early days, how much <laughs> more difficult was it, mate? He's like, oh, you've got to cut out your mms, Andy. So they're the first four. Let's dance. <laughs> We.com, me.com, talking about stuff and writing about stuff and really, really good timing on your book. When I looked at that launch date going, yeah, she's done this before. You don't put a book out about you know goal setting and new life and everything in the middle of winter and everyone's feeling in the Southern Hemisphere a little bit flat. But let, let's dance to start with. It's... It's really interesting, isn't it, when you interview someone, someone you know on a podcast, and you look at all the things you know, but then you find out a few little different things. So a first question on that, how do you find that dance between thinking, pontificating, ruminating, content creating, and running a business? Because you don't build what you've got unless you've got both. So the, the thing that has made the biggest difference to my life in the last four and a half years is putting in place a CEO in Inventium that has largely removed me from being in the business, although I still have been brought in at, at various stages and I and I still attend the team meetings and I work really collaboratively with the team on various projects, but that that took a lot of stress and workload away from me that allowed me to invest more time in me.com, as you refer to it. Although I'm in this interesting transition period at the moment where Mish, who has been Inventium CEO for the last four and a half years, is ending a 10-year chapter with Inventium, which is such a long time to spend at an organisation these days. I think the average length of time is two or three years, depending on the age bracket we're talking about. So, you know, I feel incredibly fortunate she's, she's been with us for 10 years. But I am now temporarily stepping back in as CEO and getting in the weeds and in the business. And I'm in my mind going, okay, what does that mean that I now need to say no to? Because I'm I'm good at saying, like, I'm quite good at saying no, but I need to now recognize that my time is finite and I can't do all the things that I was doing in, I guess, the me.com land and also do a good job as stepping stepping back into the CEO role at Inventium. So I'm in a bit of a transition period right now. Are you excited going, oh, this business has grown and I can come back and it's a different business, more mature, there's structure and I can add a touch? Or are you going... This is a short-term project, get in, find someone, recruit, and if I'm asking too many personal questions, you can absolutely do the media thing and go to the next question. (laughs) I would say I oscillate. You know, at times, to be honest, it feels really overwhelming. And then at other times, it's quite exciting because I let go of a lot of autonomy and um, decision-making power when I put in place a CEO and I deliberately wanted somebody else to be empowered to make those decisions. So in a way, it's a bit exciting to go, oh, hang on, it's that's that's my decision. That's my call to make again. But also, yeah, I I'm also aware that this new role involves me saying no to things that I actually would have liked to have said yes to. So I I often feel that there's mixed emotions. I feel a little bit torn on some days. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know, you probably hear this on so many other podcasts, and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. 
That's it. Now, let's get back to this week's episode. If you looked at your diary over the next month, what energises you the most? And, and, and full disclosure, I'm going through similar at the moment. So I've got andrewmay.com, which is my podcast, books, keynotes, and then stridestronger.com. So there's me and we. And my goal is very soon to step aside and to put a CEO in. So I'm, I'm, I'm behind you. Like, a, yeah, you're out there. You, I'm just in, in the lag time. But it, it's, it's so interesting when you go through that because there's this conundrum or a real challenge between the founder or the creator good at ideas, creative, innovative, wonderful storytelling. You can engage an audience. And I've heard you do that multiple times on your podcast. And then a scaler or someone that can put in structure and systems and process and somewhat remove the personality and go, look, we care about that, but you know, you're not really that important, champ. And we're going to build a business rather than around a, a personality. Uh, yeah, it's, Oh, gosh. So for those it's, watching on YouTube, you were just nodding profusely then going, I think he's talking to me. <laughs> it's like, yes, yes, that's the challenge. That's the challenge. And, you know, it's like I've got some really good strengths that I bring, but I've also got some massive deficiencies. And so that's why I am going, this is this is temporary, me stepping back into the CEO role. Um, and also in terms of my own career goals, one of my career goals right now is not to be CEO of a business for the next few years. So I'm really clear on that. And in terms of your question, in terms of what energizes me, purpose-wise, what energizes me, what makes me excited to do what I do is being able to have an impact on as many people's lives as possible. And, and really that's been, how can I help people improve their lives. And and historically that's been in the domain of work, but with the new book, The Health Habit, that's more getting into how can I help people be healthier and happier and, and make permanent changes to their habits so that they can live better lives? And that's very motivating to me. And having impact on mass might sound very obvious, but there was a point in time quite a few years back, maybe six or seven years back now, where that was actually a deliberate decision. Because I think, you know, as you know, as a psychologist, most psychologists' preference is for having an impact on fewer people, but at a really deep level. So you look at the average psychologist, like when most people think of psychologists, they probably think of a clinical or counseling psychologist in a private practice, seeing clients one-on-one. -on -one. And that's the model I grew up with. My mum's a clinical psychologist and she practiced from hospitals and also at home. And that's my that was my concept that I brought into psychology. So for me- If I just go a level deeper on that, for most yeah. people in psychology, it, it's changed. Martin Seligman has had a big impact. But a lot of psychology has traditionally been deficit model, what's wrong, rather than skill model around performance and flourishing, which is one of the original questions in the setup for today is that whole dance between you as the person and the performer. So yeah, I can imagine those two coupled together make it even deeper. Yeah, definitely, definitely. My focus has always been on optimization. How can I help people get better and feel better and use their time more wisely, which is, you know, what I think about with the How I Work podcast and with the accompanying book TimeWise, um, because time is finite. So how can we use it more wisely? How can we get better at it? Um, and likewise with health, how can we get better at health, at sleeping better, eating better, moving better? And how can we make habits stick as opposed to, you know, what, again, is the traditional model of psychology where people come to you in a deficit, maybe there's a mental health issue or some 
kind of illness, like my mum, for example, specialises in working with oncology patients and the time that she meets her patients, are, like conceptually speaking, they're in a deficit. They have been diagnosed with cancer. They are going through some form of treatment and they are seeing my mum for, for help, I guess, to help, you know, get out of that deficit as much as they can psychologically. So it is a really, like, it's a really different way that I work, I guess, and that, that I see the role in, like, my role in the world. Mm. It, a constant dance, though, even as you said, I can see the thought bubbles ticking, 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 ticking. It's energy. And, and I do this with my coaching clients. And I know it sounds simple, but you know, what energizes you, what fuels you and what drains you? So that comes back to impact. And so if I look at a typical week in my working life or a typical month, the things that I get most excited about are definitely the, the keynote speaking that I do. So I look, depending on the year, that might be as frequent as one or more in a week or, you know, several in a month. And particularly after the COVID years, they're almost always face-to-face now, whereas I went through two years where I think I did 150 virtual keynotes when everything was locked down. And so that that was a really different energy, but I just get so excited being with a group of people and thinking, I know stuff and I'm so excited to share that with you because I know that if you go out and apply it, it will have a transformative effect. So I find that very, very energizing. I get on a massive high after after keynotes. And I also love podcast interviews. I went through a bit of a funk in 2023 where, you know, after doing it for five years, I'm like, oh, I I need something new, need a bit of a refresh, but I think I just needed a little bit of a break from recording. Um, And I played around with a different format, although I'm kind of just moving back to the original one for for, um, this year, 2024. But I love learning from people and I love people speaking to people that are at the top of their game. So they would be the things. And and look, I, I do love my team at Inventium um, and I get really energised when I get the chance to work on projects or think deeply with people that I really respect and like. Mm. We'll shuffle our order because we'll, we'll stick on the theme of you.com because podcasting, writing books, keynotes, the central theme to that is you, your thoughts, your experience, your personality. And then you obviously magnify that to a business. How do you distinguish, though, between you as a brand and, and between the business? And, and again, this is one of those questions where I go, this is somebody I know really well struggles with this. <laughs> oh, gosh. Like, I've spent so much time thinking about it. I do, definitely don't have all the answers. It, do, it does occupy time when I'm thinking about what's the, what's the, the brand strategy and marketing strategy for myself as an individual brand, so to speak, versus Inventium. And I I just don't have the answers. I haven't figured it out. I've experimented with different things in Inventium to try to remove the business's reliance on me, but that's been really difficult. And now I'm at a point where I'm just about to quite significantly increase the business's reliance on me through my decision to temporarily hop into this CEO role when, of course, I could have recruited, I I could have made an external hire already, but I didn't think that that was in the best interests of the business or the team. And so that's why I made that decision that I I don't have it figured out. And I think what could also be really difficult, and before I started Inventium, I used to work in advertising. I was a consumer psychologist and brand strategist. and, And so for five years, I 
didn't think about all that much else other than branding and positioning and marketing and consumer behavior. So it probably occupies my thoughts more than the average business owner that might not have that background. So it's I think what I see in the Inventium brand is that my own Person, like obviously, feel like a wanker talking about my own personal brand, but you know, that's such a good Aussie word, and I I, I use that. Like, so I grew up in country (laughs) New South Wales, and I talk about myself. I feel like I'm going to be on the back page of Peter Fitzsimons. You know, he talks about athletes who always (laughs) talk in first person. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But but you, but you, you have to to build the success you've got. And for a lot of people listening to this, uh, there's a mix. We have entrepreneurs and all the solo artists, but we also have people inside a company who are also looking at their their brand their personal brand inside a large organization. So we, we say that, you know, a bit of a wanker when you're talking about brand. And if it's an athlete and, like, and I hear them go, oh, I'm doing this for my brand, I'll go, no, you're not. You're doing this for money, champ. And, <laughs> and then look at what do people say about you and that's how we choose the sponsors that best connect with you and it's authentic. Yeah. So, look, I think it's very real. I think it's like, you know, it feels wanky, but it's also very valuable to think about yourself as an individual brand, whether you're an employee of a company, whether you're a business owner or whether you're, you know, a thought leader in inverted commas. Um, I hate that term, but, you know, I think it's like, it's it's very real. I mean, if people are choosing to engage with what you're putting out into the world and your content, you know, if you are like putting out different um, thoughts and research and so forth, like people, people need to trust you, like just as they would trust big brands that they're engaging with. And and so I think it is worth thinking about. But then when I think about what's the brand personality, which is something that you're taught to think about in advertising, and I look at my you know, brand personality compared to Inventium's brand personality, they're pretty similar. And that was deliberate. But like to answer your original question, is really hard. And I don't have the answers. And also, I know that when I am more involved in Inventium and, you know, leveraging my brand to amplify the Inventium brand, that works well. Like, you know, both brands benefit, so to speak. Well, you're doing a keynote for a large multinational and they go, oh, this lady came in, she was intelligent, she was sharp, she was pretty cutting, she cut through. She also has a business. You've got open access and and that that is really hard. So it's a competitive advantage if you can speak. I say to anyone who's starting a business, if you can speak proper and stuff, it really can help. (laughs) Hey, I've got to laugh as well when you say you've got a marketing background. It's really hard, isn't it, to step out of your business and look at you as a product. I'm so much better. Like If you said to me, Andrew, can you tell me about amantha.com and what do you think? I'd be able to go bang, bang, bang. I see your market is here. I see the resonance you have. I can see maybe the areas that you don't play in, whether you want to or not. And it's really clear. And they go, all right, so flip it. Fuck. um, (laughs) My mates from Dubbo might judge me. They might think I'm a bit of a toss fest. So it's that... (laughs) That, that self-analysis you bring in, and it's hard to get outside that. Ha- have, you, have you asked a mutual friend of yours and mine what he thinks your brand is? And the guy's name is Nigel, Nigel Marsh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I can imagine you saying, uh, Nigel, uh, I'm doing a brand diagnostic. I've spoken to Andrew May about it. And you go, oh, fuck me, you miserable creatures out there in the spotlight, just fucking <laughs> I love Nige. I'll have to send That's him a copy exactly of this as well. It's ex- say, yes. And I called him on that. I did a podcast with him and I said, I'm onto you. I'm onto you, chat, because we, we both did a keynote late last year. 
in the Gold Coast at, AM, at AMP and there'd be your event. And I said, let's go and have lunch. And we ordered a salad and a sparkling water. And he goes, oh, fuck me. We're having rabbit food. And I said, <laughs> mate, this is a front. I said, I've worked you out. <laughs> so anyway, what would Nigel say? What would he say if you said to him, what, what, what do you think is the brand of Amantha.com or what do you think are the characteristics of a very strong personal brand? Yeah. So what? how would he describe my brand mm. specifically? Oh, that's a good question. So I think he would he he would definitely say it's quite geeky and intellectual. I think because also that's yeah. Because I'm trying to think about how our brands are different because they are very different. I, I adore Nigel, um, but I I I know that he's you know he hates like self-improvement gurus um, and, uh, and, and, keep talking. You know, I, I, I'm going to come back and tell you the story he told me when I first met him and I went, oh my God, keep going, please. I don't want to interrupt the phone. <laughs> um, and so, because I've had him on how I work my podcast a couple of times and the first time I invited him and also I should point out how I know him is that when I was in advertising working at Leo Bennett, he was my CEO and he was such a brilliant leader. I just adored him and we kept in touch after I left Leo's. Yeah, he, he would see me as very practical, advicey, pro- like probably a bit quirky, I would imagine, although Nigel's pretty quirky himself. And often when you've got something in common as a brand, you maybe just wouldn't even bother defining that as a characteristic. Uh, so there, there are probably a few things. Uh, yeah, at a guess. <laughs> so when I first met Nige, it was at the MCG. We're going back a good 10 years ago, maybe 11 or 12 years. I have, I think everything's four or five years, Amantha. I'm stuck in that middle-aged male <laughs> denial, still thinking I'm in my early 40s. <laughs> and Nigel was doing the opening keynote, ACLA, Australian Council of Lawyers Association, and uh, Paul Vine was on the committee and he got both Nige and I to come and speak. Nigel's up the front in front of 500 plus people. Business books, right? Business books. Who reads business books? And two thirds of the audience's hands went up. He went, all right, he's a good one. And he, and he had it. Spencer Johnson, who moved my cheese? Who is read? Who moved my cheese? And about a third of the audience put their hands up and he just got it and he dropped it. He said, who moved my cheese? Who the fuck cares? <laughs> A bunch of stuffy lawyers. And yeah, you know, I think we dropped the F-bomb now a little bit more 10 years later. But the whole audience collectively went, oh! and he, he held it beautifully, beautifully. I held it, it. It felt like a minute. It was probably 15 seconds. He said, all right. Now I've got your attention. And he just went on and delivered this beautiful presentation. I went, I could never do that, but kudos to you for not giving it stuff. But you know what I got him to admit on my podcast? He does actually care and he's caring more as he's maturing. He's mm. a big sensitive. It's all a front. Yeah, yeah, that 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 sounds about right. <laughs> well, let, let's shift on to Inventium. Do you find it easier looking at a brand diagnostic and talking about Inventium? 100% easier, yes. So when you started that, that shift from Amantha.com, was it was it the shift from you, from me to we, or did you go from we to me? No. So I actually, so I was working in advertising. I gave my boss three months notice because I knew I wanted to leave the industry, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so during that three-month period, I thought, mm, like I couldn't find anywhere that I wanted to work. And uh 
And so I thought, so plan B was start my own business and just create my own workplace. And so the intent and why I called it Inventium as opposed to just Amantha Imber Proprietary Limited was because I was very intentional that I wanted to build a company or a business that was separate from me. So I, in the early days, I wasn't as mindful around building out two brands. I was more focused on building out the Inventium brand, but somewhere down the track, I became more mindful about building my own brand more deliberately. Hmm. You've done okay, like good Aussie understatement. You, you're doing okay with Inventium. Clients include Unilever, Clayton Utes, Blackmores, Allen's Linklaters, Movac, Google, Apple, Disney, Lego, and Atlassian. That's a who's who, not just of Australian business, but global business. When I when I say those companies, what do you think? The fact that your business that's got your mitts all over it that you started is now working with some of Australia and the world's biggest iconic companies. I feel like, you know, when something just is like, you know, like I've got kind of brown eyes. So it's like, Oh, well, of course I've got brown eyes. That's just kind of how it is. And so I hear that client list and it's, you know, and I've heard it read out so many times because it's part of my bio at keynotes and that's how people introduce me. And it just kind of, it, it just kind of like washes over me. It, it really, it has no impact. But if I actually stopped and thought about it and I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool that like I've built up this um, you know, little business that I think bats above its weight in terms of the reputation and the impact that it's had, despite the fact that we have deliberately remained a, a small business or so we're a team of 10, like that's pretty cool. But to be honest, I kind of like, it's like, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just, I just don't, it just feels like, well, that's just what we do. We work with big businesses. It's funny you say that about keynotes when someone mentions your bio and you're there about to walk on stage. Do you ever really listen to it and go, she sounds awesome. She's this woman sounds kick-ass, or do you just disconnect and go on stage and get ready to to get into do your presentation and serve the audience? I would say ninety percent of the time I would disconnect, and it's like they just they could be reading any words, and I and I think probably something I do think about is I can tell whether they've got the most recent bio or whether they've been like. Uh, the event organiser has, I don't know, been disorganised or lazy or couldn't care and has just got like a bio that's 10 years old or something or five years old. And then I'm just like, that's that's a bit annoying that they didn't bother to get the most recent bio, even though we sent it to them. So that actually does go through my head. But I, like very occasionally, I will tune in and and listen and just, you know, try to put myself in the audience's shoes and go, Oh, that sounds like that sounds quite impressive. Like I would be quite excited I'd to listen to hear her. from that person. Um, so very like yeah, occasionally I will have that thought, but it doesn't last for very long because then I'm I'm like just kind of reading the room and thinking about okay, like how how, how am I going to open? Like I do have a set opening for the different keynotes that I do, but I'll also try to just read the room and often the the first thirty seconds or sixty seconds will be a bit improvised, so I'm just trying to get in the zone, connect with the room and go, how, how will I start this exactly? Hmm. 
Hi, it's Angela Poon. I'm thrilled to share some exciting news about the new venture Andrew and I have been working on together. Over the past five years, we've been managing two separate businesses, andrewmay.com and strivestronger.com, which has led to some confusion in the market. So to streamline our offerings and make it easier for our clients to engage with us, we've taken the best of both worlds through our learnings over the past few years, delivering large-scale programs to our corporate clients, and we have created the Performance Intelligence Academy. Based on invaluable feedback from our clients, this new offering provides a much clearer, scalable, and more comprehensive solution. Now, our approach begins with an assessment of both the physical and psychological energy through our Live Life score, as well as an evaluation of mental skills to establish a baseline through our mental skills calculator. From there, our performance toolbox serves as a personal coach in your pocket, providing resources and tools to enhance well-being, boost productivity, and develop leadership capacity. In this toolbox, we have engaging micro lessons on influencing, coaching, energy optimization, personal productivity, and mental resilience. Our platform offers access to engaging webinars, community pages for networking, and a wealth of templates and learning resources. In addition to our digital offerings, we also specialize in hosting engaging events, including keynote presentations and workshops featuring a diverse range of presenters to keep participants energized and engaged. If you're looking to elevate the productivity and well-being of your team, we invite you to reach out to us. Whilst our new website will be launching in the coming months, you can inquire for more information through andrewmay.com. Stay tuned for further updates. Exciting things are on the horizon, so watch this space. So when you look at that client list and you, and you do sit back and reflect, you're, you're in a really interesting part in your career. And I didn't realize you were stepping back in because you've, uh, what did Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin call it? Consciously uncoupling. So you've consciously uncoupled and now you're consciously coupling back. I, I'm really, really, really curious about watching this experiment play out. So I'm going to be listening to your podcast in uh, six, 12 months time. When you look at that success you've had, are you, are you really strategic? Are you really just focused and, and know how to set goals? Or have you bumbled into it? Like, have you just sort of got opportunities, you know, good, good Aussie term, good chick, good rapport, can chat, build a team, and then you go, oh, we're here. So, clearer question, Andrew. Are you strategic? Are you just absolutely focused on what you want to do to achieve? Or have you just lucked into it? I would say it's a mix of both. What I definitely am is opportunistic. So but probably the first half of Inventium's life, we had no like we had a limited strategy. We had no budget. You know, we pretty much just uh hired people when there was a need. We responded to inbound requests to work with us. And we just grew and grew and we had growing pains and we had various challenges and fires to put out, but by and large, it just kind of happened without a strategy. I would say the last few years, we we started to set a budget, which helps. Uh, and, and I kind of, now I look back on it, I'm like, how, how did we operate without a budget? Um, that's, Passion that's and energy bizarre. and fun and relationships. Yeah, yeah. So I I don't know how we have a, we've had very clear strategies for the last few years, maybe like seven or eight years. We, we've had a clear strategy every year, that, and a lot of thought goes into it. But also, there's room for being very opportunistic. Like you know, one of the biggest projects that we 
do was business came from, well, a couple actually just came from conversations and just going, I think there's an opportunity there. We don't have a strategy to do any kind of a project like this, but I'm going to just jump on that and see where it takes me. And, you know, there, there was a point in time where I could look at total revenue and net profit and go, like around about half of that is being driven by uh, projects that were not part of the strategy or the strategic intent of the business, or even like in some ways the core competencies of what we do, but they're now really successful and they were the result of just an opportunistic mindset and going, I think there's something here. I'm going to explore it. And it's kind of like, it's funny because I think in a traditional organisation that has a clear strategy and you have to stick to the strategy. And I do believe in having a clear strategy because you need discipline around what to say yes and no to and how to make decisions. Being opportunistic has served us really well as a business. Mm. Two more questions and I really want to get into the podcast, even though we've, we've linked and threaded the podcast through this podcast. Are you approach goal-oriented or are you avoidant goal-oriented? And for people listening who've got no idea what I'm talking about, when we look at fundamental goals, you can have goals that move you to something or move you away from something. Where did you sit when you started Inventium? Always approach goal-oriented. Like if I look at like, say, regulatory focus theory, which which is in a way sort of similar where you can be prevention, sorry, promotion and aspiration kind of focused or prevention focused, trying to avoid like loss or pain or whatever. I'm naturally very promotion focused oriented and going, what's possible? What could we do? What are the opportunities here? It's quite rare that fear motivates me. That's not my natural state. I also remember really early on in Inventium, I I was having a coffee with another business owner who was also in the um the creativity and innovation space where Inventium started. And I it was literally in the first few months of starting Inventium. And you know, when you start a business, you feel like you should talk to a lawyer and get agreements in place. And often that can be a very good idea, but lawyers operate from a prevention-focused mindset of how do you avoid all risk. Risk mitigation, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And and so you know, the lawyer was like, you know, you need to protect your IP and copyright this and see if you can trademark that and blah, blah, blah. And so I'm talking to this fellow business owner over coffee and I'm like, how do you approach IP protection? And he said to me, look, as a business owner and just as a philosophy, you can operate from a mindset of plenty or a mindset of scarcity. So, yes, you could pay your lawyer to help you protect all your IP, but what good will that do? Like, you know, and if you're operating from a mindset of scarcity that there's not enough work to go around, then, you know, by all means, go down that path, you know, for what it's worth. But how this guy operated was from a mindset of plenty and going, there's plenty of opportunities here for everybody. And that conversation fundamentally changed the way that I think. Not that I th- was thinking of things from a mindset of scarcity, but I just wasn't thinking anything. And so, for example, one of the things that came from that is that at, at one iteration of Inventium's values, which I guess, you know, change or iterate every few years, we we had the value of share generously. And that came directly from that conversation where when we think about our IP, like when we think about say, a keynote presentation. And a lot of speakers don't like sharing their slides. They don't like have the pre- having the presentation videoed. Like they're very protective of those things. What I fully believe is that 
everyone should get the slides. Like I want everyone to get them so that they can take their team through it or their partner through it or anyone that would benefit. Um, it all comes from this mindset of plenty and sharing generously. And even though that's not an overt stated value at Inventium, it is just part of our DNA now because it has just been drilled into everyone that that is what we do as a business. Our philosophy is that we share generously because we want to impact as many people as possible. Hallelujah. Whenever I'm asked, oh, are you able to share your slides? Yes. Like you, you might not share a whole deck, but the reality is I could give you my slides. You could give me yours. I can't do your presentation. I haven't got your stories. I can't go through your narrative and frameworks to get to where you are. And if I did, I'd sound like I'm totally full of shit. So yeah, I love that abundance mindset. And you didn't hesitate when I asked you. I could just see you. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's about abundance. It's about approach. I, I, I started, I didn't realize at the time, mine was avoided and out of ego. Uh, and then I went through a marriage breakdown at 39 years of age, just before 40. And I, I built this story as the high performer, good at sport, good at school, good at business, started to do work on TV, wrote a book, started believing the narrative a little bit too much, hadn't had much adversity as a child. And then when it hit me, I, I just didn't know how to reframe. It doesn't compute, doesn't compute. So I really really took a big fall around 40. And in hindsight now, I, I've got models and frameworks and, and have updated my operating system. But yeah, mine was more through self-esteem, you know, being good and projecting, and, and then being totally knocked down. So that, that was hard. So for anyone listening to this, what's the learning? I think it really helps to know what your drivers are. And it doesn't mean it's good or bad because you can still have an avoidant driver, but if you are aware of it or cognizant of it, at least you might know when you run out of energy. And I often say to my CEOs and big dog entrepreneurs or founders of Mantha, a chip on the shoulder can get you going, but you get then at some stage got to shift that towards a greater purpose, drive, meaning yeah, something internal. What I'd say- You're smiling like, as listening. I said that and just going- No, well, what I, what I was thinking as you were saying, like talking through that journey is that I imagine what happened when you had that turnaround for yourself is that you suddenly became so much more relatable to the people that you work with and to the audiences that you speak to. I feel like it's, it's so unrelatable to be someone that has had little trauma, lots of success, everything's gone smoothly, super successful career person- like who can relate to that? And also no one wants to relate to that. Um, you know, it, it, like the the war stories and the things that have gone wrong and the, you know, the things that make you fragile and vulnerable are just are so much more interesting. And like I I try to think about this when I am when I'm when I'm doing the podcast, when I'm doing writing um and and communicating. Because I think often people assume that because I write and talk so much about productivity and time management, that I have just fully got my shit together. I'm never procrastinating in my inbox. Every day is like massive amounts of meaningful progress made. And it's just absolutely not that. Um, and Wrap so up the I'm podcast, quite... Wizard. This woman's full <laughs> of it. I just, <laughs> that, that was actually one of the, the questions I had. Yeah, I, 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 do you just nail this? Because we tend to teach what we're good at, so say success, or you can teach what we suck at or setbacks, or 
a bit of a blend of both, which most people then go, yeah, I relate with you. Yeah. So I, I think it is a bit of both. I think on average, I think I am above average, but I think I am above average because I have thought and researched so much about this field. And also, you know, because like, you know, so many of us, I think, you know, it's like 80% of us, you know, experience imposter syndrome and the other 20% are probably just lying. Um, but because I desperately don't want to be the plumber with the leaky pipes because that feels inauthentic and I, you know, I value, like I place value on authenticity. I want, for example, when I deliver a keynote, a meaningful piece of feedback that I'll often receive is that people go, you're the same person on stage as you are off. And that's important to me. Um, like I don't want to be putting on a mask or something like that. But I'm just trying to remember where I was going with this. What what was the point that I was trying to make? Oh, yeah, about the plumber with the leaky pipes. It's like I desperately don't want to be someone that is proclaiming like productivity, this, this strategy, that strategy, and then a complete mess myself. So that funnily enough motivates me that if I feel like the wheels are falling off and that I look back on a week and I'm like, what did I achieve this week? This was a write-off. Then I'm motivated through wanting to like practice what I preach and be authentic because it's not very authentic to be like a, you know, a productivity, like person giving advice and just like be completely unproductive and a procrastinator. That motivates me to get back on track, which is kind of, I don't know, weird, but maybe also predictable psychology that that happens. So I don't have it all together 100% of the time, but I'm probably better than average because of that weird motivation because of what yeah. I choose to speak and write about. So if anyone's listening to this and they're like the old me, drop the shit, uh, acknowledge that you've got challenges and problems and phobias and fears and you are so right i have had so many people say you're so much more relatable now because you think you got oh, i thought i had to project that i've got all my shit together and then sharing that like in the right way because i think there's a little bit of oversharing and uh, i had a, a guy at a large firm recently said hey can you come and watch me talk because i think you speak pretty good and stuff so i watched him and he started started well and then he said oh now let me be vulnerable with you i'm like Oh, oh, you don't say to a like kid's like, ah, oh, Teflon slimy. But when you share it authentically, and yeah. on that, um, you went through a marriage separation. You may not want to talk about this, but I did hear you. You talked about it in your podcast. Did, did you struggle like I did? Did you really have that, oh, what are people going to say and think and judge? Or did you, did you have models to get through that a lot quicker than me? So I I probably struggled in different ways because I think a lot of people and particularly men from what I observe they struggle with the idea of being a failure because it's it's a it's kind of seen as a symbol of success I think for a lot of people to keep a marriage intact but for me I didn't see it that way like for me I actually felt it was a very brave choice to leave what was not a great marriage. Like there was nothing majorly wrong. Like there was, you know, no like um, addiction issues or abuse or something where you just go, well, of course you should leave. It just wasn't all that great for either of us. And for me, kind of initiating that process felt really brave because it's, I think a lot of the time it can be a lot easier to stay in a marriage, particularly where there's kids involved. And I, um, at the time, my daughter was five, um, so still pretty young, it's easier to stay. It is easier to not create change. So in that sense, we were probably a bit different because I had no 
status association or ego wrapped up in my ability to maintain a marriage for me there was actually it was kind of a yeah just a braver thing to 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 leave because it wasn't right for me and that wasn't the relationship that I wanted to role model for my daughter am i interviewing you uh, dr amantha imber or are you providing psychology counseling guidance for me when you said that i just went <laughs> I think she's talking to me. And look, <laughs> anecdotal, because every person is different from your values and frameworks and religion and family of origin, all, all those factors combined. But I, I agree. And I, I'm the go-to now for a lot of my males who go through relationship troubles and or breakdowns to try and unravel and unpick. And I see that so often is with guys. It's, no, but I've done this. It's like, but lose it. I've been there as well. You know, <laughs> Lose the ego, lose that yeah. bravado and shield. And do you really love each other? Oh, but, but no, 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 no. Do you look at her? Do you look at him? And do you feel sparks? Do, do you feel that love and connection? Do you have the dance? And ask yourself those questions rather than perception I sound so wise now. God, 10 years ago, I didn't know any of this shit. <laughs> Gosh. And look, it's so it's so hard when you're in it. Like I always think for anyone that is listening and going through this or contemplating it, you know, and, and I'm probably like you and that like in my friendship circles, uh, I know a lot of people that have gone through separation and divorce and, and, and that inevitably leads to a lot of conversations where, I don't know, where I, I try to help in, you know, whatever way I can. But man, like I'm four years out of the marriage and like obviously like when you have a child together that just creates so much complexity around co-parenting and you know quite a lot of stress if I'm honest but I also look at just where I am in my personal life I you know found just the most wonderful partner and I just couldn't imagine a better relationship and I just think if I hadn't made that decision to leave where I was, I would never have got to experience this in my life. And so I feel really grateful for that. And it was certainly like through a lot of hard work and time and, you know, in, in terms of dating and dating during COVID. Oh my goodness. And you're in Melbourne yeah. too, right? So dating yeah, exactly. in Melbourne so, and COVID was... Yeah, it was very hard. Yeah, yeah. Ended up actually doing a couple of seasons of a podcast with my best friend who was also, you know, going through a divorce about dating, but that's a you whole other story. You beat me to it. I was, and, and maybe it is another story, but if, if you hadn't gone through that experience, you wouldn't have been able to start a podcast. You're going to go, no, no, I've been doing the podcast. Well, no, no, the podcast, How I Date. And when I heard you... Yeah. I got. I'd be frank. Yeah, I've never listened to it because I think at that stage I was in a new relationship and I could have done a podcast. I did. I did a lot of due diligence in the early years, so it, it was just timing. But I thought, oh, how interesting was that? A was that a form of therapy for you and your friend to do that? I wouldn't say it was therapy because we we. we would talk like multiple times a day, every day. And that was probably our therapy. But what was really helpful is that the format of the podcast is that we would talk about our own dating experiences and then we would interview an expert and then we would debrief on that interview. So that was the basic format we had for the show. And what was really cool was getting to speak to a lot of experts. I think we maybe, I don't know, did um, 15 or 20 episodes all up across two seasons. And so that's a lot of experts that we got to talk to about all sorts of things. And that was that was that was really fun at the time because I was you know deep in the dating world. Good experiment. <laughs> I can imagine though you meet, we'll say Carlos. That's a good exotic name, isn't it? And then you say to Carlos, oh, "I've got a podcast. What's that? Oh, how I date." Ah, really? <laughs> Pure. I'm out of here now. A podcast that has sustained and wasn't just 20 episodes is how I work. Let me give you some names: Leanne Moriarty. 
global best-selling author, Hugh Van Kylenberg, Maggie Beer, Janine Alysis. Get a cup of tea, ladies and gents. I'm going to be here a long time. Mia Friedman, Tim Kendall, the CEO of Pinterest, Holly Ransom, and MBS, Michael Bungay-Stania. I've had Holly and Michael on recently, so when I looked back at your catalogue, and I, I, I'd listened to Holly, but, but when I look at that, I go... And that's just a smattering, small smattering. You interview so many interesting people, like from Google to Apple to around the world. It's crazy. Yeah, it's been amazing. I mean, that's been one of the joys of of having a podcast. As, as you would know, like I've had the opportunity to speak to people that never would have given me an hour of their time uh, were it not for the fact that I have a podcast that is well listened to and that gives me the opportunity to you know, speak to some of my heroes like Adam Grant and Cal Newport. And, Adam Grant was um, your first, you know, right? You otherwise, launched. I never would have had that chance. How did you launch with <laughs> Adam Grant? Like he's a he's a he's a rock star. Interesting, yeah. not psychology, but life and living and presenting. He's oh, he's such an impressive guy. How, how on earth did you get him your first episode? Yeah. So how that came about actually is I was attending TED. 2018 in Vancouver. And at that point in time, that was in April 2018, I launched the podcast in July. I went to TED with the intention of starting a podcast. And I thought this is the perfect opportunity to secure some big names as initial guests. Like there there were a few other people there that I connected with, like Matt Mullenweg, who founded WordPress and Automatic and, you know, the powers a third of the internet's websites, Amanda Palmer, very famous musician, and a, a few other people. And Adam was one of the people that I connected with. And he said yes. So that I so I guess it was, you know, going to Vancouver, being in that experience and um the, you know, somehow talking my way into having these people come on a podcast that wasn't even in existence at the time. Yeah, kudos to you. That's 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 ballsy, <laughs> and, you, and you pulled it off. Five million plus downloads, hundreds of episodes. This is like asking someone who's their favourite friend or who's your favourite child. So if any of my four kids are listening to this, it's all of you. You're all my favourite children, <laughs> especially when I'm with you. <laughs> Do you have a favourite or one or two that really come to mind? So if you look back in the catalogue, ask yourself on the spot, bang, what's one or two that you just go, huh, go there, conversation, still feel it? Yeah, I I mean, Adam Grant's an obvious one. He's been a, like a hero of mine for many years. I think I've had him on two or three times. I'm about to interview him again in a couple of weeks and I feel like, you know, I guess like in in – podcast terms, he's great talent in inverted commas in that he knows how to tell a great story and be very compelling and engaging. Um, and there's minimal editing required. He's just such a joy because he's so thoughtful. He's so well read in terms of research and he's the sorts of things that he talks about are very practical and actionable. And I know that that's what listeners respond to and it's what I enjoy hearing as well. So he's definitely one. On the Australian front, I, again, someone who I've had back on a few times is Dom Price, who is Atlassian's Atlassian. work Dom's, Dom's a great entertainer, yeah. raconteur, but serious with his message as well about his sister when I first heard that. And yeah, go yeah. to listen to Amanda's podcast on it. Oh, it moved me. Mm, he's um he's great. Again, I think I've had him on maybe three times. I recently interviewed him again and that episode's being released in the new year. But he's just someone that is very comfortable 
being vulnerable. He's very thoughtful and deliberate with how he operates and he's a great communicator. He's a great storyteller and all those things add up to creating a really great interview experience for for listeners. So he, he would definitely be a local favourite. Shout out to Dom. You must get asked to go on a lot of podcasts now when you've built your brand and you must get a lot of people asked to go on your podcast. So for your podcast, how do you decide? What's the mechanism to get someone through? Because if all these people are, I imagine you get emails every week, multiple emails. Hey, listen to your podcast all the time. Insert something nice. That's what we're told to do. Create some rapport. Love that podcast you did with Don Price from Atlassian. Love the one you did with Adam Grant. Uh, we'd love to get you on. What What do you do to screen yeah, I, pr- I probably get about five reach outs every day, I would say. Every so day. It's a really high volume. It's a lot. I do read every single email, but I'd say in terms of people reaching out to me, oh, it might be, I don't know, one in 50, one in 100 that I would say yes to. I firstly need to be genuinely interested in what that person does because you just, I find it really hard to fake interest. Like there have been a couple of times where I've, done that I can't remember why like maybe they were quite high profile and I thought that makes sense because they're high profile they've got good reach so maybe that will help grow listenership but I've learned that I genuinely need to care about what they do um so that's that's one thing secondly they they need to be high profile in some way shape or form maybe it's just within their industry like as opposed to being a household name but I think you know there's like that that's typically what I have built the the how I work brand around. Like it's not just picking out random people that are doing interesting things, although that's interesting as well, but it's just not the choice that I've made for how I work. So that is also a factor. So to be honest, most guests that actually make the cut are people that I've proactively reached out to. And sometimes there'll be happy coincidences like I um like my assistants in the process of lining up an interview with someone that was pitched to me who is a like a global expert on meetings. He's a professor over in America. I'd actually heard him on Adam Grant's Work Life podcast and some of my team and I were talking about him and his research and fortuitously, like literally a week later, his publicist reached out and said, hey, you know, would you would you consider having this person on the show? And that was just, that was, you know, some nice synchronicity in action. And I'm like, oh yes, I I would love that, but that's quite rare. So generally it's me thinking, what are the themes that I want to cover over the next few episodes and, and proactively putting together a hit list, reaching out, crossing my fingers that the person is keen. As a great segue, new book, The Health Habit, Shape Up, Sleep Better and Feel Amazing. Gosh, I needed this. Where were you five or seven years ago, Amantha Rimba, when I needed to shape up, sleep better, feel amazing? I had to sort all this shiz out myself. It's hard sorting this out yourself. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, so like I, I'm just so passionate about health. It's almost like it's a priority for me. It's my top value. And and so writing the book has been or was because it's it's written now was amazing to be able to go oh now I can incorporate one of my biggest passions into what I'm actually doing uh, on the work front. Do you write books as a reflective process to catch up with changes you've made, changes you might need to make, or do you write books for the market at the right time to get maximum amount of appeal? Or knowing you. It's never black or white, right? It's either or. It's and. 
It is. So I can share with you how I came up with the idea for this book. Oh, do. Do you do? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually felt a, a bit of pressure to come up with my next book quite quickly. So with my previous three books, there was years between each of them. But my last book, Time Wise, was published through Penguin and it sold really well and, um, you know, Penguin were happy and the team were happy and I was happy and my my agent said, look, you know, you should probably try to come up with your next concept quickly and, you know, capitalise on the excitement around TimeWise. And she said, you've probably got about a six-month window, so come up with something. So this is six months from when you published TimeWise? From when it launched into the world. So I was kind of still in the middle of TimeWise publicity and and my head was not in the game of what's next, that I was just feeling a little bit of pressure and thought, okay, that's a really fair point. So I am um I'm gonna think about that. And I, you know, I was thinking I spent lots of time thinking and having discussions with my agent and I sort of landed on things that felt logical and sensible and would probably have sold well, but I just wasn't feeling super excited about them. And then I remember one day I had this thought, because because I am passionate about health, but I don't really do much around health in the work sense. And I thought, well, you know, there, there's all these books about health and I love reading health books. And it occurred to me one day, I think I was in the shower and just having just like random thoughts. And it's like, there's all these books about health. And and I know for me, I will buy a book about health and I'll read it and I'll think, oh, that was really cool. And then I'll maybe try to implement something, but inevitably the habit won't stick. And then I'll next month I'll be out buying the next latest health book and and so on and so forth. And I think this is what a lot of people do. They'll buy a book about health, whether that's how to, um, you know, shape up, get fit, lose weight, um, sleep better or whatever the sort of problem that they're trying to solve is. And they'll read the book and they'll like the book and that's why it becomes, you know, it sells well, but they won't actually make sustainable change. Have you seen my bookshelf? <laughs> I have, I, there's a term for it. It's a, a condition where you can't go into a bookstore and walk out empty-handed. I, and and when I travel at airports, I know if I walk into a bookstore, an airport bookstore, I will buy a book. It's just I, I have a condition. I, I I'm like a little squirrel connecting acorns. I I have the same condition. There should be a name. Is there actually a name for yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's called bibliomania, the compulsiveness of having to buy a book. So, uh, hello, Andrew. I, I'm going to start bibliomania anonymous. You can come and join me, and and we'll get everyone who buys your book to come because we want to thank them for buying the book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, so there's all these health books, and at the same time, there's this whole other section of the bookstore around habit change and how to change behavior and, you know, books like Atomic Habits and Tiny Habits and How to Change. And these are all books that I love and have read. But I I was having this thought, I'm like, why hasn't anyone combined these two concepts? Because when you read a book about improving your health, which ultimately involves habit change, you kind of need a companion book about how do you actually create permanent lasting change when you're talking about your habits? And so I thought, wouldn't it be great to bring that together, to go what are some of the most impactful but underutilised evidence-backed strategies that we can use to eat better, sleep better and move better and combine that with understanding, well, how can I, with my unique barriers as an individual, apply the latest science in behavioural change 
to make those new health habits stick. And so that was the idea that I got really excited about. I then pitched it to uh, my publishers at Penguin. They got excited about it. And here we are, I think about a year and three months after I pitched it, which I should add is I was working to very tight deadlines, uncharacteristically I feel anxiety deadlines. for you because I've got my next book bubbling away and MatchFit was three years ago. So that's a fair bit in between books. So to actually do that, having done the process, and for anyone listening, if you haven't written a book, one, you should, and two, don't underestimate how much work it is because it really is from initial concept and then writing and then editors and right to the finished product. That's a really, really tight timeline. Yeah, yeah. And the reason why it was so tight, like you commented, that the timing of the release of the book is fortuitous. It, it came out on January 9th and there was a reason for that. Penguin said, this makes sense to release it then, so let's just work backwards in terms of deadlines. And so I, I remember it was um, it was the day of my work Christmas party in 2022 that I got the call to say we would love to publish this book and then it was about negotiating the deadlines for uh, when the first draft of the manuscript was due and then obviously all the editing that then goes into it after that and um, and, and all, the, all the things that kind of happen behind the scenes before a book hits bookshelf. So it was, um, it was a very intense year of work. <laughs> well, going back into CEO of the business you founded, having stepped aside and yeah, still consulting, working in, working on amantha.com, writing a book, a podcast that goes around the world. I'm sure you're in good shape. You must sleep well and you must feel amazing just to handle this workload. And that's obviously the, the sizzle, right? When you feel good, you operate well. And yeah, as a psychologist, uh, my first training was as an exercise phys. And I can remember, so as a psychologist, you'll get this. This is going back 25 years ago, Mantha. One of my mates, Dano, back then said, I'm going out with this new girl, Louise. Lovely girl. And she's a psychologist. And we all went, what do you talk about? Like, we're the fitness gang. Like, yeah, we do push-ups and talk about interval training, everything. What what do you have in, in common with a psychologist? I apologize because I was so ignorant back then thinking you know, we owned the domain as exercise physiologist on the body and psychologists owned the domains on thinking and schema. Gosh, how wrong I was because the two are just so interconnected. Hippocrates, two and a half thousand years ago, he knew this, you know, a healthy body and good nutrition is the platform for a sound mind. It just took neuroscience to get the psychologist talking to the exercise physiologist. Hallelujah. <laughs> I know. I know. I Like, I, I feel the same way. It's funny. When I was, uh, I think it was maybe 19 years old, I was doing my undergrad psychology then and I had this random thought, like I would occasionally visit gyms, I think, but I wasn't particularly into exercise then. But I just thought, you know, there's this whole industry of personal training and fitness professionals and they learn all about the body. But I mean, the majority of it is about the mind and about motivation and understanding mindset. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to be a psychologist who was also a personal trainer? And so I did my PT quals, you know, when I was did you? 19. Yeah, yeah. Because I thought, oh, that'll be a great career being a, a PT who's also a psychologist. I mean, needless to say, I didn't end up following that path, but I, I you know, I had I had that thought, um, yes, many years ago. So I did personal training because I was a, an athlete and I used to, my joke is I used to take overweight people for walks. So I've got to be very conscious where I say that because- 
not everyone sees the humour in it, but it, it was my job and people would lose 15, 20 kilos and then they had businesses. This was when I was in Hobart and then that opened up a whole different revenue and, and opportunities. But then I realised the model that I had, which was quite didactic from sport and athletes want to make the team, whereas a lot of people don't. They don't have a team that they're trying to make. So when you say it's my way or the highway, they're often taking the highway. So the didactic, here you go, rev everyone up Gordon Ramsay approach as a personal trainer didn't work so I went and did a master's in coaching psychology because I needed to learn how to have a broader range of conversations with people who weren't as motivated as athletes so interesting you went the the brain body way first I went the body way and then realized hey I'm limited this is limited I need to get both yeah so combining both in this book Give us, give us a couple of tips. So someone who's listening to this, what, what's one tip from Shape Up that excites you the most? And it could be a tip you researched or it could be something you've brought into your routine. Because reading your book and going through it, as I said before, I picked it up and like, looked up, it's midnight. I got engrossed and, and I was running the parallel port. One going, oh, this is really good. And then the second bit, oh, I like what she's done there. I think I know where she's trying to take the read so I was looking at on that you know what you're saying but also what you're doing and and you got me yeah yeah cool um well look something that is now this is like look it's I I think it's in the the movement section but like it kind of crosses over into nutrition as well but it is a movement strategy so I in the last few years have become very into uh monitoring blood glucose levels so essentially yeah what my blood glucose is doing after i eat certain foods or do certain activities and so i have taken to running experiments on myself where i'll wear a cgm continuous blood glucose monitor um which is which is basically yeah if you think about like a flattened ping pong ball that has a needle that sticks into your skin and then it's almost like you've got a scanner like a, a thing to be scanned on your um, which you then scan with your mobile phone and then the, the um, accompanying app gives you a reading of what is your blood glucose doing. And, you know, pretty much all health practitioners agree that you ideally want to have a blood glucose a level that's fairly flat, like peaks, massive peaks, massive troughs are not good. That is why we feel we have like sugar highs and sugar crashes. I'm sure we've all experienced that. And and there are um, a lot of other very bad health implications if your blood glucose levels are all over the place that, you know, puts you at greater risk of diabetes and cardiovascular disease um, and things like that that you want to avoid. So I have run a lot of experiments to look at what can I do to have those be those levels be as flat as possible. And one of the things I write about in The Health Habit is the impact of going for a short 10-minute walk about half an hour after you eat. What's really great about this is that, yes, you can change what you eat to flatten out um, the, the blood glucose uh, rise that typically happens after you consume food, but you can actually do a lot with how you move your body after you eat. So something that I try to do, and again, I don't do this religiously, but I know that when I do it, it has an impact and it makes me feel better and it like levels out my energy so I'm not crashing after a meal is I'll just go for a simple walk around the block about half an hour after I've eaten. And there's 
quite a lot of interesting research to show that that is one of the most effective ways that you can just flatten out your blood glucose levels. And it is. It's a great form of biofeedback. Uh, Dr. Tom Buckley and I do this with our high-end clients as well, give them a CGM, and they come back and they're like, oh, God, I didn't realise, especially food sensitivity, because glycemic index doesn't work for everybody. Um, but if you give the obvious, have a can of Coke, and you and then, so when they watch what happens on that, it is such a good way. So I love that you're doing that. Sleep better. Can I go on this one? I mentioned earlier today, Nick Littlehales, when he talks about the sleep cycles, and a sleep cycle goes for 90 to 100 minutes. And when I first read that with Nick, I was like, thank goodness, because for years, I'm sure you heard as well, the sleep researchers, so-called experts would say, you want to sleep for eight hours, you want to recreate for eight hours. And then you want to go and work for eight hours. Who does that? Like no one. It was just just not realistic. And some people sleep less and are fine. Some need more. So I love that you talk about sleep cycles. I do. And I there is, there is just a myth out there that we require eight hours sleep per night. Like what I found with some of the, the sleep professors that, that I spoke to who were, you know, located at some of the top universities around the world, like Harvard and Oxford, for example, there's there's really interesting research and huge meta-analyses that that suggest that probably seven hours is closer to an ideal amount of sleep when we look at what's the ideal number to I- improve our mortality or reduce the chance of premature death. I think that that's really interesting because a lot of us beat ourselves up if we don't get eight hours because that seems to be the common recommendation thanks to the media messages we receive. Um, But for me, it makes me think quite differently after learning about that research and and speaking to various professors and going, if I've got seven hours sleep, the old me used to go, oh my gosh, that's not enough. I'm not going to be functioning properly because I didn't get eight hours. But actually, uh, seven hours is, is a very good amount of sleep. Something else that really surprised me is that I think a lot of people, if they don't like when they wake up or when their alarm goes off, if they're not feeling like they're ready to bounce out of bed like like an energizer bunny, then clearly their sleep was not of optimal quality. But um, this is something that I learned from uh, Dr. David Cunnington, who used to run the Melbourne Sleep Disorders Clinic. And he said that for it's like 97% of the population – our, our natural circadian rhythm or like sleep-wake cycle is a little over 24 hours. So it's I think it's 24 hours and 20 minutes, which means that if you are living a life according to your inbuilt, pre-programmed sleep-wake cycle or body clock, if you like, you're only going to wake up feeling fully refreshed if you wake up at the end of that. So for, for the average person, it's about 24 hours and 20 minutes, which means that you need to wake up 20 minutes later every day in order to wake up feeling fully refreshed. Because if you're shortchanging yourself on what your body clock is naturally programmed to, you're going to wake up with a bit of sleep inertia where you feel like you haven't had the best night's sleep. So the best way of actually saying, have I had a good night's sleep, is it takes about an hour and a half to two hours after you wake to reach you know, kind of like a relatively full level of alertness. And that was a game changer for me, understanding that, because there are a lot of mornings where 
I wake and I'm like, oh, I still feel groggy. I don't want to get out of bed. Does that mean I should just stay in bed? But actually, no, it doesn't mean that. It just means that my body clock is naturally more than 24 hours, as are most people. And actually, I'm going to be better placed if I get up at the same time every day. That's actually going to be far better for my um, for, for my energy levels and day-to-day well-being. Yeah, it's such practical info. And then it's going through that daily reset, sunshine, a bit of movement. So exactly what you're saying after eating. I often talk, Amantha, and you're talking to an executive group or talking to a group of people, highly intelligent, cerebral, a lot of audiences that you have as well. And you're getting asked all these really high-end cerebral questions. And sometimes I just feel like saying, go back to what people did 50 or 60 years ago. Yeah, we've overcomplicated it. Yeah, get mm. good exercise, get plenty of sleep. And if you wake up feeling tired, if you're running a farm or you're back then harvesting, you don't have time to feel good. You just move. And you know what? 90 minutes later, you feel good. Hey, and I've got to add as well, those two you've added you know, to shape up and then blood glucose levels, and then getting proper sleep. So your glymphatic system, which is related to your memory, you're cleaning that every night, but your marvellous mitochondria, and you can see where I'm going, step three, of course you're going to feel good if your memory, if you've got memory recall, cognitive processing, that emotional regulation, and also those little millions of powerhouse cells, if you do those first two, you're going to feel better, right? 100%, yes. Or if you're bathing your cells in sugar, alcohol, toxic stress, uh, crashing your sympathetic nervous system all the time, you're going to feel shit house. But on feeling amazing, what I really like what you talk about is how to change habits and overcoming some of those cognitive hijackers. And I was reading that going, ooh, which bit will I choose? So to, to wrap up the final part of our podcast, and then I've got one reflection, and this is a Holly Ransom, Adam Grant uh, inspired reflection to finish. But what's your tip for people to feel amazing? Or what, what have you found is the greatest feedback you're getting from the book about the feeling amazing part? Mm. I think the thing that's, uh, that's coming through is that it's, it's quite eye-opening to go, look, there's not actually a one-size-fits-all approach to changing habits. And in the book, there is an assessment that I ask readers to do to identify what is the biggest barrier that is blocking you from making this permanent change to adopting a new health habit, whichever one in the book that you choose. Some people have a motivational hijacker, as I call it, or barrier in the way. For some people, it's more relational or social about sort of the social norms in their life. For others, it's environmental in terms of like the physical environment that they're in every day. And for others, it's cognitive if you're just feeling like mentally exhausted. And then there's different strategies that you would apply depending on what your main barrier is. And I think that that's been quite eye-opening because a lot of the time, you know, we're we're taught by the media that's like, well, this is how you change a habit. Um, And it's like, well, actually, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. You're far better off having a personalized plan based on what you as an individual are struggling with. So I think that that, that's that's coming through Uh, a lot from readers. This doesn't compute because I've heard the pop psychology American motivation speakers. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is the part. This is the crucible piece of the presentation. 21 days to make it. What a load of 21 days. Some people have got poor habits for 21 years so yeah the fact fact that you even quoted some of the research on how long does it take to make or break a habit and your answer was really it was authentic it's complicated we don't know because everyone's different yeah absolutely (laughs) hey we've covered a lot 
So we, we've, we've danced. We've danced about that difference between creativity and putting it into practice and running a business. You put a little flip in, said you're going back to being CEO. This is such an interesting experiment for me uh, to, to come back and to listen to you and to even check in six months, 12 months, how that's going. We spoke about setting a big business and that blend that you've got between being strategic, but also just going with passion. I felt that today. I can feel sometimes you go, yeah, I've got a bit of a plan, but yeah, this is what I'm really passionate about. That comes through. Getting over some of the conditioning as a psychologist, especially what you did organisational psych, where you probably felt a bit uncomfortable amplifying you, putting you first, and you, you've got comfortable with that. Then podcasting, how are you doing that? So it's been great interviewing a podcaster. I was a little bit nervous at the start before we went on, and I just had to sit and go, okay, I've done this before, but yeah, because you have 5 million downloads, but then your books and the process. Um, so I've really enjoyed the conversation and also a few deviations talking openly about relationships and some of the challenges you've had and mistakes and learnings along the way. It's it's been a really varied chat. I've 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 loved this chat. It's always fun talking about things that I'm not often asked about in in interviews. Well, that was my second goal. So thank you. I've achieved the second goal now. <laughs> Holly Ransom did this to me, and Holly got it from Adam Grant. And I'm sure you've had it from Adam. In the podcast today, as a podcaster, and you might want some time to reflect on this. Uh, what what have I done that worked? And what have I done? And this is what I'm more interested in. What can I improve upon? How, how could have I made this a better interview? So actually, let's go to that one. Let's scrap the other one. What's been, what's worked? Because I think you would have hung up if it was really shit. <laughs> but what could I do in the future to improve podcasting based on your loads and loads of experience? Hmm. That is a hard question to answer because I feel like a common criticism that I have of of people is that I could almost guess the questions that I'm going to be asked. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, which for me as an interviewee makes it a less exciting experience. I um it, like I have a background in improv and um I I love yeah, I love getting questions that are left of field and put me on the spot because for me that's really exciting and challenging as opposed to knowing what kind of questions I'm going to get asked. So that's been really great about today. Um, you've obviously done your research. And again, that's a bit of a pet peeve as as an interviewee when the host clearly hasn't done much research and is kind of winging it. So like you've done that. I think that there's also been a good balance of you putting yourself in it because you are the host. It's something that I struggle with on how I work, how much of myself to put in interviews because I'm like, well, people are listening for the guest, but then by the same token, like, you know, I have had feedback from people I trust, but it's like, but it's your show. They're tuning in to hear your version of the interview. Um, and so I sort of oscillate between oh, how much, how much do I share? Was that too much? Was that not enough? I feel like you had a really good balance there. I uh gosh, this none of this is constructive feedback. Um, maybe, hmm. I think there were a couple of points, and I, ca I can't think exactly what they were, that um, you responded and then there was a bit of a pause and I thought, oh, should I be jumping in and continuing to answer that or is Andrew going to move things forward with a question? And I could be more comfortable sitting in silence, but then I wasn't sure if you were waiting for me or whether you were about to move the interview forward with a question that would move 
move us forward in the journey. And so maybe, I'm not sure if that was deliberate, that pause, or whether in your mind you were like, "Mm, where do I take this next? So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm curious back. about that. I don't know whether it was. <laughs> am I am I am I consciously building in <laughs> uncomfortable pauses to get someone to think? Oh, that's gets gets actually. I don't know. I'm going to listen back to listen to that. So thank you. That's that's an area to to really look at. I think it comes from for me. I used to have a habit, and I and I haven't completely broken it, but it's something I'm mindful of that if someone gives me an answer when I'm interviewing them, and I then have a comment but then I don't immediately move things forward with a question. What can often happen is that the person I'm interviewing will feel the need to talk a bit more about that thing, but really what the interview needs is for things to move forward, like either to a new topic or go deeper into the subject. And so that's feedback I've received myself. And so I think about that a lot. If I'm just going to like respond with a comment as opposed to comment, then question to move us forward. I know that it's always going to be better if I quickly follow that up with a question to move us forward rather than leaving some space where the interviewee possibly is going to jump in with something that's not going to move things forward. Yeah, I can think of one or two areas in a previous interview uh, two days ago where that that happened. So thank you. I'm going to look back at that. Yeah. It's actually, and it, it, it's nice to get feedback because I think when you've done communicating, speaking for a while, you don't just want people to say, hey, this was good. You actually want to know the bits. And that's what Holly said when Adam first asked her this. She said she was petrified, but now like you, she's done three or four interviews and it's really helped her learn. So thank you for also helping me learn and evolve. Now, people who want to get more of you to read about you and everything you do, but to especially buy your books, where should they go? Uh, they should just search for The Health Habit wherever they buy books, whether that's their local bookstore or one of the online retailers. And um, yes, I, I, I love hearing reader feedback. So um, for those that want to contact me, I'm very easy to find online. Um, I'm at amantha.com, just my name. I'm also on LinkedIn and Instagram. But because I've got a unique name, like Samantha without the S, uh, I'm just very easy to find. The, the rock star in wrapping up. Is, is, is there any unfinished business there? Are you going to go and get the, the rock album or is that just yesterday's news? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> right. Hey, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed today. Love reading the book and I appreciate your time. Likewise. It's been a delight. Thank you. Thank you.